Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Evan, how are you, sir? Good, Jeff. I uh, hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I did. Happy Thanksgiving. And uh, it's a really exciting day for us here because, you know, uh, we've had some great guests since we started this thing up. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun, you know, uh, actors, Malcolm McDowell and uh, musicians like Wayne Coyne and, you know, great comic book talents like Liam Sharp. And today, though, it's like, I think this one's really special because we got one of my favorite people um, that I've interviewed on the show because we have the creator of Hellboy. We have Mike Mignola, who I don't know if you know this, Evan, but he doesn't do many podcasts. Yeah, I was actually trying to do a little bit of research on him and found it a little bit hard to find him, you know, outside of articles. So I'm glad yeah. that he decided to do ours. He says, uh, when I asked him to do it, he said, you know, I don't really do podcasts, but he said he would do ours. And you know what reason he offered? What's that? He said, if Suzanne Vega did it, I'll do it. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah, that is. I thought it was great. Um, so Mike Mignola is, of course, uh, you know, best known for Hellboy, but that's not uh, the end all of, of his career, uh, certainly. But uh, it's a fascinating success that he's had with that character, you know, because Mike uh, has ownership of the IP. Uh, and he's, so he's benefited, you know, Hellboy has been a feature film on three different occasions. Um, and, uh, there's been an animated project. There's been prose novels. Uh, there's been, uh, all kinds of products, uh, you know, just, it goes on and on. And, you know, Mike has a stake in those things. And that's something that may sound obvious to some listeners who are maybe accustomed to, you know, uh, hearing about authors like Stephen King and, and um, other successes in the traditional publishing world who naturally have a stake in the characters that they've created. But in comics, for many decades, uh, for the majority of the history of the, the medium, uh, work for hire has been the rule, uh, has been the, the general standard. So people like Jack Kirby, who co-created Captain America, Thor, you know, Hulk, and all the Avengers, most of the Avengers, um, you know, didn't have a stake in those characters. You know, the, the company owned them. So Mike is part of the generation of the first generation to really flip the script on that topic. And uh, his success has been just amazing to watch. You know, there's, there's very, it's very rare to see a character uh, endure with uh, one creator, you know, for so long. Uh, and to see a creator so closely identified with a character like that, you know, it's not unheard of, but it's, it's, uh, it's not the norm. And it speaks to Mike's talent, also his versatility and, and his growth, because he started, he was, he was an artist uh, and then shaped himself into a writer as well. And, and, uh, 
and and good good thing he did because it's taken us to some really amazing places. I, I first came to his work. I was a reader of uh, Cosmic Odyssey when it came out in the, back in the 80s uh, when I was in South Florida and I was a teenager. And um, I remember thinking that it was uh, just, uh, it just jumped off the, the cover, the artwork just jumped off the cover and it was different than other artists and was more stylized, you know, uh, more cartoonish, so to speak, uh, to use a term. And much, much was made at the time of the size of their feet those characters had very small feet and very large torsos, um, a look that would soon be familiar to uh, genre fans through the DC Comics animated series, you know, like Batman the Animated Series and the, the Superman series, Bruce Timm's stuff. Uh, there, there's, there's a similarity in the, the you know, the, the dynamics and the, the construction of the characters, the way they look. Um, there and Mike was, you know, on the front edge of that. Uh, he did some Hollywood work. He did stuff, the concept art for Atlantis, the Disney project, which is uh, awesome. Which is awesome, and about a submarine and about <laughs> Victorian stuff. So, like, yes, very interesting to me. And uh, um, so, anyway, Mike Mignola is—he's got a difficult last name to pronounce, <laughs> and I know how to say it. So, I—that I, makes me feel good. So he has me introduce him on stage a lot. <laughs> I'll years. just call him Mike. Yeah, that's probably safest. That's probably safe. Which is why I'm trying to tiptoe around the Hellboy movies because those have two people with very hard names to pronounce, which is Mike Bignola and Guillermo del Toro. So yeah, kind of just butchered that, but no, um, no, no, you're good, you're good. Um, and you know, the, there's Mike is a funny guy because uh, he'll be the first to admit it. He's a bit of a grump. You know, he's uh, he's kind of got a. a grumpy edge to him he's a uh, I wouldn't say he's a misanthrope but I would say that he might be um accurately called cranky <laughs> and uh, which makes it all the more fun to interview him because it's always a little bit you know, I'm always a little bit nervous um but it always ends up going well and that's that should uh, that should be that should be what we get today but if it goes sideways I want everybody to know it's not my fault I did try yeah, we'll cut to commercial. We, we, see, we see some things happening. Um, yeah, I know so he's got some really cool stories to share with us. Mm -hmm. um, he's had a very fascinating um, life in comics and then in the movie industry as well. He's met a lot of interesting people. So I'm looking forward to hearing those stories. And unless you have anything else, I think we can get to the interview. No, I think that sounds great. Let's, uh, let's check out uh, and see, uh, see how this goes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, here's Mike. So, Mike Mignola, welcome to the show. Now, Mike, you've been working on uh, different projects, as you always do, but uh, one of them is a good cause, and it's kind of an interesting approach to a good cause. Uh, you know, I I'm friends with you, Mike, on Facebook, so I I've seen what you've been doing with this, and it's really, really cool. And, and just for the listeners, just to kind of put it into, a, uh, into focus, what it is, is you're taking characters that are not characters you're traditionally drawing, uh, characters, some characters that people may not have even heard of, some of them very obscure, and uh, doing your own interpretation of it, and then um, auctioning off the original artwork as a fundraiser for a very good cause. And so it's fun to watch for us Facebook friends of yours, uh, and people can follow you on Facebook so they would see it as well. 
Um, and it really just shows the versatility of your art and your, your imagination. Well, and, and it, it gave you a day structure. Yeah. You know, I got up in the morning and I sat at the drawing table and I'd be there all day. And yeah. granted, you know, for every drawing that I posted, there were probably five drawings that ended up in the garbage. But at least I was sitting there and just belting this stuff out. And for months, I was having a, a, a perfectly lovely time doing it and not watching the news. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things that uh, I've noticed that you've done in recent years leading up to that is just your, uh, the posting of different work by different artists uh, from all just the full range of art expression, you know, like uh, a lot of uh, stuff from different eras and different disciplines and, and, and uh, different medium, um, different media. Uh, is that uh, something that I just noticed lately? Um, in your life or is that something that you've been doing a lot I, your whole run i've i've been doing it i think i started doing it with movies at one mm. point i started posting a lot of stuff from movies yeah. um and it goes back i think where it really started i did a convention years ago um i can't remember where and a young artist came up to me and uh he was asking me about what I do and about composition and stuff. And I mentioned Frank Frazetta. And this was, again, a young artist, 20 something artist, no, had no idea who Frank Frazetta was. And it was inconceivable to me because for my generation, he was like the yeah. ultimate king of fantasy artists. Led Zeppelin. I, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> of who? comics. He's who? the Led Zeppelin. At that, that kid who Led Zeppelin was, you know, <laughs> uh, or the Beatles. No, because so. I, I was so stunned, and every time, everything I mentioned about Frazetta, this kid, it, none, none of it rang a bell. So I remember being, I think there was a little tear coming out of my eye. <laughs> I remember you know, finally saying to the kid, I'm, I'm groping for what to say, and I said, here's how you spell his name, Google him. And it occurred to me, we have the ability to know anything about everybody yeah. But if you don't know where to look or nobody steers you in that direction. And I, and I ran over to, to Bernie Wrightson. Bernie was still alive. And I, and I said to Bernie, this kid didn't know who Frazetta was. Yeah. And Bernie very reasonably, Bernie who also was the king of comics for a while. And sure. he was sitting here at a convention with no line in front of him. Uh, he oh. said very patiently to me, well, how old is this kid? 20 something. When was the last time Frank... Oh, and Frank had just died. Frank had yeah. been dead for like six months. Okay. But Bernie said, when was the last time Frank was doing current work? Right. And you realize that that's a lifetime ago for this kid. Yeah, more. And, and, I, and Bernie said, that's part of our job to keep these guys alive. Wow. And, and at that same convention, for unrelated to this, I had started asking fans if they had seen Bride of Frankenstein. Right. And almost none of them had seen it. Yeah, yeah, very few people and, have seen it. And so I realized, well, I've got my Facebook thing. I can at least put this stuff out there. Sure. And, I'd, and I'd been getting it for years, uh, you know, because I've written introductions and, and, and notes in, in other books of mine where I mentioned this is inspired by this author or that author. And because I'm very big on like Victorian era ghost stories. Right. And I'd had a couple people over the years come up to me and say, you keep mentioning these Victorian era ghosts. Can you give me a list 
Yeah. And so I realized there's so much of the stuff that I'm into, artwork, films, stories, that people just don't know. Yeah. They just have no idea. It's one thing if they see it and they go, ah, Brian Frankenstein doesn't work for me. That's fine. Yeah. But to say, I've never heard of it, or, right. oh, it's an old movie. Is it really any good? Um, so to use whatever platform I've got to, to show this stuff to people. And every time I, I and I, you know, I'm always reposting, especially Halloween, here are yep. my five favorite ghost movies. And there's always somebody who says, oh, I've never seen The Innocence, or I've never heard of yeah. The Haunting. And every time one of, I get one of those people to say, I've never heard of that, or I'll check that out. I go, I feel like I've done my job. Yeah, you've really, I've, I've produced my body of work, right? Yeah. Hellboy is what I'm going to be known for. Probably the best stuff I've done I've, in that world, I've already done. Hmm. So what's left? And it's really just to say, well, let me just share other stuff that I like with people. And maybe the fact that I, the guy who does Hellboy makes people go, oh, well, you know, he's not just some schmo. He wrote a monster story I like. Maybe I should check out the shit he likes. Yeah, he's no schmo. That's, that's what I think that's the takeaway. Uh, I, the, what more can you ask <laughs> if, if well, that's know, what people think of you? Exactly. But it, you're right, though. It's, it, at some point, we need to try to strive to not just be towers, but to also be bridges, you know, to, to, to reach back to things that influenced us and celebrate things that matter and, and illuminate things that are overlooked. And, and that's, you know, a big part of also keeping ourselves engaged in our best pursuits of what we should be doing, because it reminds us of the basics, you know? Because things I can understand for young people, uh, like I said, the technology exists to know about all this other stuff, but at the same time, artists now, artists, writers, whoever, um, they can, there's so much content out there, just what's happening today. Yeah. And unless you're really into something, do you really look backwards? Right. Because when we were kids, you know, I, I always go back to monster movies. You know, you circled TV Guide for the right. four or five monster movies that would show up on TV. You'd stay up to 2.30 in the morning to watch yeah. Frankenstein versus the Wolfman because you never thought you'd ever get a chance to see it again. Exactly. And if you were into comics, you searched the library and you found stuff about the history of comics. But I think there was so... It was so limited how to get information that you spent more time looking for information. But now, you know, all you do is click on the computer and you have access to everything. Right. Now. That's right. Uh, and it's, and, I mean, I, I can do it. I can get on Facebook or wherever and spend the day looking at what everybody's doing today. Right. And what the, all these different artists that I follow, I'm looking at all their work. Right. But I'm not, unless I stumble into one of these groups for old book illustration, I'm not, I could go through weeks without looking at anything that's older than, you know, yeah. two weeks ago. It's, it's true. You're right. Uh, it, it, the, the nature of information, the nature of knowledge, the nature of, of um, what we can reach and access and, and how quickly that especially it's just i mean when i started as a reporter you know we had a library at the, the newspaper and we would call them and say i need to find out how many registered voters there are in orange county okay stand by you know and they would like go and there would be like 
you know, vacuum tube, tubes working and like uh, people with visors, you know, uh, just running around offices holding paper above their head and suddenly we would get this answer. And, it, you know, I started at the times when I was like 21 years old. So uh, I, I really enjoyed being part of this thing and I would flaunt it. So I would be at bars and like, I would debate somebody about something. I said, hold on a second, we'll take care of this. And pull out my phone and call the LA Times library and say, will you tell this bozo that I'm talking to that, you know, Jack Nicholson was in Reds, you know, and like, yes, he is in Reds, you know, like it, it required though that operation to get that kind of information. Now it's all on our phone. So what, does that make that knowledge less valuable? Does it make, you know, like the value of it changes and, and the, the nature of it changes? I, I can't find almost anybody under the age of 30 that knows what an iron lung was. No, it, it the stuff stuff goes away. Stuff yeah. just goes away, which is easier. That's that's. I mean, I don't want to get too serious about it, but that's how people can go. Holocaust, yeah. right? Did yeah. It, did it happen? Did it? You know? Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's it's scary. Uh. And again, I I don't want to like say oh kids they don't you know I I don't want to do that thing no. about you know dismissive of that generation because I I can understand it. It, it's you know now a, a movie that's you know a movie that's about the 1950s is a period piece right right yeah. uh a movie made in the 1950s is probably in black and white and so a whole generation doesn't want to see it because it's right. in black and white it's an artifact uh, i had i had to trick my daughter into sort of watching bride of frankenstein right uh i i missed a, a a thing when, when there was probably a certain age where I should have shown her or sat down and watched with her a bunch of the old Universal monster movies, right. and I didn't do it. Right, and that window closed. Yeah, um, but I she was in my studio working on something on my computer, uh, probably erasing things that she wasn't supposed to erase, um, <laughs> and I put Brian Frankenstein on the background. So she got exposed to it, and at the end, she actually said to me, "I wish you'd made me watch it." Right. Because it was so weird. I kind of would have liked to have seen it. But yeah. try, try to actually pin her down now and get her to watch it. Exactly. The more you want to show somebody something, the more they resist it. Uh, and it, isn't it funny, this our, our reflexive skepticism, especially when that person is someone that we're blood related to. <laughs> yeah. Well, the only way, I mean, you know, she was, she was slow getting to read. And uh, you couldn't make her read. Yeah. But what we did was, it was the one of the big Calvin and Hobbes collections came out, right. and we just left it in her room. Nice. And we didn't see her for 24 hours. And same when um, when they collected all the Jeff Smith bone stuff into one big oh, book, yeah. we left it in her room, and we didn't see her for two days. Oh wow! You know, but but if you'd said, "Hey, you have to read this," it wouldn't have worked. Isn't that funny? And um, I think you and I have talked about Jeff. Uh, and before about just what an accomplishment it is. And, and I know also you're a big Jeff Jones fan. Mm. You know, um, it's funny because I- Jeff? Is it the all Jeff part of the, uh, part of the this show? Is, this is, yeah, this is the segment okay. where we go into the Jeff. Jeff, from Jeff Boucher, spelled you differently. Know it's, it's, we could go on and on, couldn't we? Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think when you uh, first hit the scene, um, that sounded so funny. Uh, uh, when I first saw the comics Very that you were dated creating, sounding. Uh, going back to like, you know, Gotham by Gaslight and, and Cosmic Odyssey and around that era, 
um, I remember there, the, a lot of people would mention Kirby when they mentioned your art. And I think I even mentioned it when I, when I first met you. Um, and that, and in hindsight, the, the, I don't see it uh, the way I, that way anymore. Like I, I see not a, a ton of stuff, a connection between your work and Kirby's work. Um, and it really wasn't a particularly strong influence on you as a reader, was it? Um, oh, or, huge as an artist, for me as a, yeah, huge for me as a reader. Huge um, as a reader, yeah. It, it wasn't, it wasn't a huge influence in that there was never a period, you know, like I went through with Jeff Jones and Bernie Wrightson where I tried to draw like them, but Kirby was always there. He was so, he was so prevalent in my comic book reading Right. that I kind of took him for granted. Right. As an artist, he was weirdly kind of invisible. Huh. And then when I, when I did Cosmic Odyssey, I did sit there with Kirby stuff on my drawing table for reference for, for a solid year. And, and where the Kirby influence came from was freeing me up. Because hmm. just being exposed to the level of exaggeration he was doing and the power, I... I didn't try to do it exactly like he did it, but it did make me go, oh, being precious and correct about things is not as effective as what Jack is doing. Especially when you're drawing guys, you know, firing beams out of their eyes and, you know, fighting an army of hawk people and, yeah. and planets exploding. You know, <laughs> there's no reason to really be real fussy and, and, you know, correct about things if you're drawing that kind of shit. Yeah, especially so, when someone's flying. I'm sorry, flying with skis, you know, uh, through space. Yeah, I never really had to do that, but I did have a guy flying in a chair. So, you know, yeah. same kind of shit. Um, so, yeah, Jack was gigantic yeah. then for that reason, uh, that it just, it was it was very liberating. Because I think yeah. already there was a part of me that tended towards abstraction that I in my work that I was kind of fighting against. And with Cosmic Odyssey, it was like, dude just cut loose yeah yeah it's it, as you say that it's interesting because like kirby as a person and 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 sort of the expression of his work always kind of remind me of frank capra like the, he has qualities in common with frank, frank capra not not art, as far as the art but as far as the message and the way that he's viewed things but the way you're talking about him right now it sounds like he was almost like a picasso influence on you like to to kind of oh yeah break down barriers and and look at the thing differently yeah, it's, you know, the difference is, I mean, you look at, like, yeah, my art history is a little blurry, but I almost get the you know, sense that when Picasso was doing stuff, everybody currently was going, holy shit, look what that guy's doing. Yeah. And what's strange to me is that Kirby had been out there for a gazillion years doing what he was doing, and I didn't. I just took it for granted, yeah. I guess, because I grew up with it. He was, when I started reading comics, Jack was already mostly out of comics. Right. But, you know, the stuff was still there. So he was always there. And then with Cosmic Odyssey, suddenly I just discovered a guy that I, I, I rediscovered a guy that I had known forever. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because he, he, he was such an uh, elemental figure. Uh, it's like if Picasso had Norman Rockwell's career. Like, you know, like, you know, we're seeing all this stuff on magazine covers and stuff because it's so, pro, uh, you know, uh, ubiquitous. Right. And I think, but I think also there was, there's maybe a thing where I had to have learned a lot 
on my own from all my different sources to get to a point where I could connect with Kirby yeah. on that art level. Uh, it might have been I was I may have gotten to a point with what I was doing where I was hitting some kind of a wall and it needed to go somewhere. And then you look at Kirby and you go, oh, OK, that's going to blow blow some doors open. So yeah. for whatever reason, it it worked. And again, I think one of the things that's nice is people look at my work and they say, they ask me who my influences are because they really don't know. Right. right. So yeah, you look at my stuff and you don't, unless it's one of those pages where I draw a lot of those Kirby dots, they don't see Kirby. They don't see Frazetta. They don't see mm-hmm. Wrightson. Um, what they see is me taking all that different shit and processing the hell out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And also uh, you have a singular style and, and, and that that's in, especially in your business, that that's very, very rare to, to be truly, truly distinctive uh, and, and unified in your expression. Like, I mean, it's, it's a testament to all the work that you've done. You know, it's really impressive. It's, it's, you know, what I don't miss were those days where you're working and you're trying to figure out who you want to be right. or you're going through that thing. It's a, it's a, it's a great phase to go through when you're right. young, where you go, I got to figure out because I love Barry Smith, but I also love Jeff Jones and there are two different planets. Right. How do I do a little Barry Smith, but make it work with some Jeff Jones kind of shit yeah, that yeah. I'm trying to figure out. And you just, work on that shit and little by little it all kind of stitches itself together and there comes a day where you can appreciate what everybody else is doing and maybe in some little way you pick up a little bit of this or you pick up a little bit of this from another guy but for the most part you're working on your own stuff you know you've you've kind of your focus becomes i drew this thing how can I draw it better? Not how can I draw it more like this guy or how can I draw it more like that guy? You never stop looking. I mean, you should never stop looking at what other people are doing, but at some point you're self-referential. You're right. I think, you know, it, it's, uh, and that's, you know, that's, especially if you've done it for a long time, then, you know, if you take on some other project, you kind of go, I just have to feed it through the Mike Mignola filter. Right. And it'll come out looking like Mike Mignola, as opposed to, oh no, I'm drawing Squiggly Diddly, who I've never drawn before. Is it going to look like a Hanna Barbera cartoon? No, it's going to look like whatever fucked up thing happens when you try to draw or you try to draw the Flintstones. Sure. What's that going to look like? I guess I'll just bang on it till it looks like a Mike Mignola version of Fred Flintstone. Yeah, the Great Kazoo. What was that all about? Do you have any thoughts on that? The Great Kazoo. That was uh, Mike Carlin pointed out to me that I hadn't drawn the great kazoo so i googled him and drew him he's crazy like i i it's just like i don't understand how that happened on the flintstones it just came out of nowhere well i again my my memory of the flintstones is is fairly blurry i was never really a huge cartoon guy so a lot of that stuff was just oh here's a weirdly shaped thing what's it like if i put my kind of rendering on some weirdly shaped thing oh wow so there there wasn't a lot of I don't want to say there wasn't a lot of love in that stuff, but it was yeah. mostly just a challenge of, and weirdly, I think one of the first drawings I did when I started doing those sketches uh, of, of cartoon characters was Wilma Flintstone 
Yeah. Why did I start with Wilma Flintstone? I have no idea. I think it had something to do with this curl she had in her hair. For yeah. whatever reason, I looked at a picture of Wilma Flintstone and I said, what's it like if I draw that? Yeah. And I'm not known for drawing women anyway. Sure. And yet it was one of my favorite drawings of a woman I had ever done. And it was Wilma Flintstone. You got in touch with something primitive. I guess I did. <laughs> I love the way she giggled. That's what I loved about her. But you wouldn't know that. See? I don't. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. I have switch. a lot of cartoon child, childhood. I mean, like Ricochet Rabbit and uh, you know Grape Ape and Magilla Gorilla and Adam. Yeah, Magilla Gorilla was on my list. I never, never got around to doing him. Bullwinkle. Thought about it, but you know what the trouble with Bullwinkle is? Well, there, there's only one. Well, there's a couple, <laughs> but I thought I love the shape of that thing. Yeah but it looks nothing like a moose. Right. So, I mean, I do, I'd done some sponge draw job characters and where there's a squirrel in SpongeBob, I, I made it look like more like a real squirrel. And I thought, well, I could see how I could do Rocky squirrel. I just draw a squirrel. I see. But with the What's moose, do Antlers. I draw him like a moose? Do I draw that human kind of body with a real moose head? Right. And, and it was just one of those, I'm giving it too much thought. Yeah, yeah. I'm giving it too much thought. If I had treated him like a Jack Kirby monster, right. which is probably would have been the most satisfying way to do it. Just take what was there in the cartoon and just say, I'll just do a more fucked up version of that. Yeah. But I got hung up on, well, what point do I, I start referencing a real moose? So that's yeah, great. Never you, when with uh, your love of the classics and, and also uh, overlooked gems uh, in film and, and, in art and all the other things that we love. Um, is there some Christmas ones that kind of you have a soft spot for? I was thinking with the holidays, it'd be fun to talk to you about that. Is there some Christmas horror films or some Christmas themed comics that you would uh, list as uh, dear and near and dear to your heart? I'm, I, you know, when it comes to Christmas, other than a lot of like the real cryy stuff that I like, the newer cryy stuff. Uh, yeah. I'm a big, I'm a sucker for crying at stuff. Um, I, I, I just, I immediately go to Charles Dickens. I immediately yeah. go to the Christmas Carol. Uh, that's, that's the, you know, to me, the, the one classic Christmas thing would be yeah. like the, my two or three, two, I guess, favorite versions of the Christmas Carol. Yeah. Those are the, and gotcha. and and of course the 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 Grinch. Oh yeah, yeah. The live Boris action. Boris birthday. Boris Carl. No. Boris Carl's birthday. Huh? Boris Karloff's birthday is today. It, it, you know what? That's fantastic. And here we're talking about the Bride of Frankenstein. We're talking about the Grinch. That's fantastic. Have you seen his TV show? Like some of them are like nutty. The, there thriller? are Roku. Yeah. Thriller. Oh yeah. It's it's a funny. It's a funny thing, and I've actually been men meaning to post something about that on Facebook, which is Carlos' birthday, maybe a good day, because I'm nice. sure nobody's ever heard of that show, because I'd never heard of that show until some years back. Um, and apparently, can't, now I can't remember, I, um, it started, I think the way it was, it started to be very much like Alfred Hitchcock presents. That's the, the they were format. they were like mystery crime stories, right? And I think they ran half a season like that, and I think 
Hitch, the Hitchcock people or Hitchcock was like, hey, dude, that you're, you're ripping off my show. Yeah. And they switched to a horror format. Huh. And so they were adapting a lot of old horror stories, including a Robert E. Howard story, hmm. uh, Pigeon from Hell. Um, a couple other ones that were from old Weird Tale magazine. So there's some really good, great horror stories. But you know, as you watch the two seasons of the show, the first half a season is Alfred Hitchcock Presents type crime mystery. Then it switches to horror for the second half of the first season and the first half of the second season. And then I think it was like, well, we're wrapping it up. Now we'll just use the, uh, the last half of season is, is just the crime stuff again, because we stopped running it. Or, yeah, I can't remember exactly how yeah. it worked, but, but there are two radically different kinds of shows. Yeah. Uh, and this is like, swamp thing. <laughs> like the swamp thing comics, like suddenly it's like slam on the brakes and yeah. completely change. I guess so. It's a random, um, random comparison. Yeah, I'm so sorry. it is pretty, pretty much. But um, yeah, there's a terrific one with a scarecrow. Really disturbing thing with a scarecrow running around. Um, yeah, it's a great, it's a great series. What about the Barbara Stanwyck show that was, I think, contemporaneous with that? Have you the seen Big that? The Big Valley? No, I don't. No, know. no, no. I mean, it's called the Barbara Stanwyck show, and it starts off. It's exactly the same format. She comes out and she's in a gown. And she's looking at the, straight at the camera and says, "Tonight on Barbara Stanwyck, the Barbara Stanwyck show, we have four players, and it'll it'll be you know some fairly well known actors uh, like Keenan Wynn and stuff." You know, hmm. never heard of it. Uh, I did not hear of it until like just a couple months ago, but it's on it's on Roku along with Boris Karloff's Thriller, and also I started watching um, Rawhide. And there's a rawhide with Clint Eastwood and Dick York and Barbara Eden. So it's like Bewitched and I Dream a Genie meet Dirty Harry. It's like such a strange It, it is weird to watch the old stuff uh, and see, <laughs> oh, they're all in it. There, there was, it's like yeah. this little company of players. One of the things um, I love getting away from the actors, but... Um, so I'm sure there are some repeat actors in like the thriller stuff. And there's some really cool people in that series. <clears throat> but what I really love is that you see the same props. Hmm. You're dealing yeah. with a finite number of, of physical objects. So you'll <laughs> see the same chair in different stories. You'll see the different houses uh, in different stories. There, there was like two or three good creepy houses on the universal right. lot and you would see them reused over and over again. That's great. Yeah. I love stuff like that. Or like the, the saucer from forbidden planet shows up in lost in space. And then it shows up in, you know, in happy days and like crazy places, well, you know? Oh, it's like, I mean, again, as a kid, you know, it's lost in space was my show, but then you watch, you know, voyage to the bottom of the sea and you go, Oh, it's the same monster. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Except they just hung some seaweed on him. Is Richard Basehart um, the blandest star of any TV show ever? It's a strong opinion. I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, I yeah, I'm not Richard Basehart. Yeah, it's it's you know, I don't know why, but Voice of the Bottom of the Sea never really registered with me, and I won't I won't blame Basehart, um, but it just didn't. It wasn't lost in space, even yeah. though the, 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 the only clear memory I have from Voice of the Bottom of the Sea is that there's some giant 
Gill Man kind of monster at some point shaking the submarine. <laughs> and that that and, and plus I think that that the fish monster guy I think had been seen on Lost in Space, but it was just the fact of now that's now that's comics. Now that's TV. You've yeah. got a giant shaking a submarine and I'm sure all the guys inside were falling back and forth, but uh that's literally pool. the only that's the only thing that I I remember from Lost. That's great. From uh, Boys of Um I I was looking at uh you know, uh, I was trying to figure out the the first alien or some of the first aliens portrayed on television. I went digging for this, you know, a few years back. And one of the things I found out, uh, one of the earlier ones I found was on Captain Video, the TV series, if I remember correctly. I hope I'm remembering this right. Um, and it was Ernest Borgnine played like an angry, like Martian really early on. And it's just, it was, it was bananas. If you go back and look at it, like the whole thing is crazy. Um, and also, have you seen this thing that Shatner and Adam West did before they were on Star Trek and Batman when they did Alexander the Great, a Toga TV series? No. Sword and Sandal kind of thing uh, with, with uh, Shatner as Alexander the Great and Adam West as his Toga wearing buddy. And the nuttiest thing is with co-star Joseph Cotton. <laughs> like, it just makes my head explode. Yeah, yeah. There's certain guys that you don't really think of for period, especially that kind of period. Um, I love and now one of my I, I'm I'm huge. I love Bible epics. I love oh. them. I love uh, Ben Hur. That's for sure. I love Ben Hur, but I also I and I love I specifically love Jesus movies. Uh huh. Um, and I still think the greatest one is Jesus of Nazareth yeah. by uh, Frank Franco Zeffirelli. And Ernest Borgnine's in it as a uh, as a centurion. Yeah. And I just think it's such a great. It's whether it was done on purpose or not. It's like a nod to bad Bible epics where yeah. you had all the wrong people playing, <laughs> you know, Romans. And the yeah. fact that and and I think it's the only weird, really odd casting thing in that suddenly Ernest Borgnine's in it. Yeah. And I think that's just uh, just beautiful. And he's great. And he's perfectly great. He's yeah. perfectly great for it. Or Edward G. Robinson. Yeah, yeah. Where's your Messiah now? <laughs> like, yeah, what? yeah. It's, it's, it's almost <laughs> that kind of a thing. It's just, a, it's or, just uh, nuts. Or uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, in uh, Spartacus. Oh, to uh, oh uh, yeah. Um, uh, Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Why not? Yeah. He's like... But it, and it doesn't ruin the movie. It's just, it's just one of those things. The more you see it, the the odder it is. They yeah. they said, yeah, Tony Curtis, sure, why not? Now you you worked. Uh, one of the things that you've done in your career, you've had so many amazing, interesting departures from the expected course. Uh, and one of them is the 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 work that you did on Dracula, the film, feature film, the Francis Ford Coppola film. Tell me, you don't have to. Uh, I don't mean to exhaust you by making you tell a yarn, but it, it led to an encounter with George Lucas and, and Francis Ford Coppola that no reasonable human being could ever expect. Um, and, and After all, all my years, it is still the strangest case of being it. And I've had a couple, especially with Del Toro, I've had some very weird, never thought I'd be here kind of moments. Sure. Um, 
but the Coppola Lucas thing, I think, because it was the first. I yeah. mean, the very first film I ever worked on, and I and I did very very little, very little on that film. But I did it directly with Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. I mean, that's literally day one working on a film was with Francis. So that's insane. Yeah. Um, and I had done very little, mostly most of my involvement, because I was in San Francisco. I would go up to Zoetrope studios offices uh and to pick up photo reference for the comic and i got called in to just consult there was a a model that francis wasn't happy with and i i came in and he basically told me what he was thinking and i tried to draw it up just to pass it on to the sculptors and i did that and i think i i don't it, it, uh, there was a couple other little things i did but i think i was they could tap me because I, I could, you know, go from my apartment to Zoetrope in 15 minutes. Right. Um, so I got involved in a couple little things. You're like a courtroom and, sketch artist, like quick, draw this. <laughs> yeah. But I, but again, I, I think it only happened like that only happened like once. And then there's oh. a castle, there's a castle that appears in kind of a flashback dream thing right. for about 30 seconds. And I and somebody else designed that castle. We did in the old days of fax machines. They, somebody would do a drawing, they'd fax it to me, and I would do a drawing and fax it back. And somehow that ended up being in the film. That's awesome. um, so there wasn't much. So I get when I get this call out of the blue to come up and watch a rough cut of the movie. But it's really just, as I recall, it was come up early. There's going to be food. <laughs> Because it's Coppola, you know, like well, he's, but, food but is such again, a big thing. I, was, I wasn't life. even thinking, I guess I assumed Francis would be there, but I thought it was just going to be a, because Zoetrope was a pretty relaxed place. Right. And I was thinking it would just be a, a couple guys sitting around in a room watching the movie. Sandwiches. And maybe there'd be pizzas, you know? Yeah. So when I get up there, I, I still remember walking into Zoetrope and it seemed like somebody was there and, and pointed downstairs and said the lunchroom or whatever is downstairs. And I go downstairs and again, you know, it's, your memory gets distorted over time, sure. but I seem to recall that as I walked down the stairs, I could see the table and I, recognized right away that there was Francis and George Lucas sitting at the table and the table was set for three people. <laughs> and I remember thinking, who's the third guy? And then thinking, oh shit, that's me. And it was just how how fucking weird is that? And and I don't know I, at what point did George Lucas ask Francis, who's coming? Right. Who's the third guy? Because the impression I got when I got there was George Lucas was going, who the fuck's this guy? <laughs> I think, I think George is like the president of the United States. He doesn't go into a room unless he's been briefed on who's going to be there. Right. Um, Not a lot of chance and, encounters. And again, I had, I had met Francis a few times. So I was, and, and he's, you've met him. I mean, he's yeah. such a sweet, easygoing guy. It's very easy to be relaxed with him. Um, though in the lunchroom, all around the walls were framed photos. Have you been there? The, no, the no. lunchroom? They're, mm. they're, they're famed, framed photos of him on the set of Apocalypse Now. Right. 
At least that's the ones I remember. So everyone's here like, da, 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 I'm having dinner, this is fine. And then you look up over at these pictures and you go, oh, it's just a big sign that says you shouldn't be here. Yeah, Godfather 2. Remember, <laughs> remember where you are. Right, um, right. <laughs> and then, you know, and, and dinner was great. And we had wine and we had cappuccino and and uh, it feels weird telling this story because I've told this story so many times. But it but is I my best. You. It is it is my best story. Um, and and so then we watched a rough cut of the picture, and I'm sitting between them. It's like yeah. a couch, and there's three of us sitting on this couch or a long couch. But anyway, I'm sitting between them, and I've got to go to the bathroom so damn bad, and I'm not going to make it through the movie. And there's a <laughs> There's a thing your brain will never get ready for where your brain actually has to say, all right, do you ask the guy who made Star Wars or the guy who made The Godfather where the bathroom is? And your brain just goes, we never thought we'd have to have <laughs> solved that riddle. Um, and, and then we kind of didn't really argue, but we discussed. George had some specific ideas about things that he thought should be more explained yeah. in the film this is the george i met the george lucas who would he hadn't done it yet but he would make those three Jeez. star wars movies where everything is explained right, and right. george you just saw that he just thought he gave the audience no credit right right you must explain everything right. to everybody um, well, he makes blueprints. He likes, you know, he's an engineer at heart, you know. I, I did, I, I think somebody, somebody pointed out to me, I'm not sure it's exactly true, but they said in those other three Star Wars movies he made, if you saw people on a spaceship, you would always see the ship land. Otherwise, how did they get to the planet? Right. So, well, they were on a ship and now they're not on a ship. You could kind of assume... Right. That at some point the ship landed and they got off. Ah, you got to show right. that because because there's a scene. That's interesting. And again, I hate to, I I don't want to bang no. on George Lucas too much, but it's just it's there was a scene where Anthony Hopkins, Winona Ryder, are being tormented by these three vampire women. Right. And as originally filmed, it's a beautiful transition uh hopkins draws this magic circle in the snow and then it kind of tips up and kind of dissolves into the sunrise right go from a circle to a different circle and when writer kind of wakes up and looks around like uh where did anthony hopkins go right right and then hopkins appears on the wall of the castle and he's got the heads of those three women and he's got a knife the size of a baseball bat, Kokori knife, as in the book. Yeah. Um, he's got the vampire heads. He's got blood all over him. He's got this big knife. And George said, where did he get the heads? And it's not like calling back to something that happened 20 minutes earlier in the film. It's like, no, no, no. About 25 seconds earlier, we saw these women giving these guys shit. Yeah, right. And they had heads on. And, and they had their heads on. And the, the amount of blood that was on Hopkins and the knife would seem to be a pretty clear indicator of how he got the heads. Yeah. 
But n- now there's a scene in the film where Hopkins goes in and I, and I, I drew the scene the next day. Uh, it was very, it was very strange. Cause the, the very next day, I mean, after you have this weird night with these two guys <clears throat> and I'll never forget Coppola walking us out and two things happened simultaneously. As the doors closed at Zoetrope, I think I knew that whatever work I had done on the film was over. So when the doors closed, there was a sense of, I was in there. I was having dinner with those guys and it'll never happen again. I've been I've been expelled from paradise, you know, <laughs> and I thought I can spend the rest of my life clawing and scraping to get back in there or I can make my peace with it and say that was cool. That was weird. Let's move on. Sometimes um, spaceships land. Sometimes they land. Right. <laughs> but also I was I was suddenly alone with George Lucas on the sidewalk and <laughs> I remember saying to George, hey, we went to the same junior college and we had about 30 seconds of slightly awkward conversation about Modesto. Oh my. And then I said, and then I said, nice to meet you. And I took off yeah. and I th- I got to think he must've been so relieved when I left as opposed to me saying, Hey, now's the time to yeah. ask you a bunch of star Wars questions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then, then the next day, again, it's so fucking weird. You, you, the next yeah. morning you wake up and you go, that happened. That was crazy. And I, you you must have seen the Heart of Darkness documentary, sure. right? Yeah, I love it. I put it on. I've always loved that. I have a copy. I put it on. I was watching it. And while I was watching it, the phone rang. <laughs> and I turn off the sound, but the picture's still on. And it's Francis, who's never called me. I've right. talked to his assistant. I've talked to his son on the phone. But uh-huh. I've never had the experience of picking up the phone. Mike, Francis. And you're like, oh, fuck. That's yeah. weird. I can now watch you make apocalypse now while I'm talking to you on the phone. <laughs> and I remember at one point, oh, he's talking about like, can you, what do you think about drawing up a couple of these scenes that George mentioned? And I don't remember what I said, but at one point he goes, I know you and George didn't really agree. And I'm like, oh shit, that happened? Really? It was clear that George Lucas and I were not necessarily <laughs> arguing, but I remember there were a couple points where George would say something, I'd go, yeah, really? Uh. Yeah. So, so I drew up a couple <laughs> scenes and, and the weirdest was, uh, and George was completely right about this one. Um, the way the film originally opened, you saw Dracula on the battlefield. Yeah. And then he kind of has this, oh shit, something's wrong. And he goes rushing home and one of our writers laying there dead. Right. And and George had said, you got to see him go off to war. Hmm. Not, spe- not, not necessarily because how do we know why he's at war? It's like a, right. It wasn't that so much as for the emotional thing. You need to see right. him say goodbye to his wife. Right. Before so that see. you give a shit when she's dead. Yeah, you don't meet her dead. Yeah. So Francis said to me, you have an idea how to do that? I'm the schmo who's drawn the comic book adaptation, right? So (laughs) this is the thing you have to explain to people. You have your work brain and you have your fan brain. That's right. And the fan brain says, he made the Godfather. Look on the TV. You can watch him make Apocalypse Now. 
But the work brain goes, you know, I actually do have an idea. Yeah, exactly. I remember, I remember it seemed like it took 45 minutes to explain because I said, do you remember the old Charlton Heston movie, El Cid? And he's like, well, kind of. And he goes, oh, there's this great scene in a barn with, yeah. with uh, Charlton Heston and Sophia Loren. And it's all very romantic and it's all very quiet. And they're going to go off or no one will ever know that he's the greatest warrior in Spain. Right. And they open the barn door. And there's... And there's the entire Spanish army chanting, yeah. seed, seed, seed. And of course, I, I'm sure I did my god awful Charlton Heston and Sophia Loren imitations. Oh, see Francis that that probably didn't help. <laughs> oh, 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 because because Charlton Heston's like you know, Sophia Loren's clutched Charlton Heston. She's like, why? And he's saying, first Spain. And I said, that's, what you <laughs> that's pretty good. That's the opening. That's the opening you need. And he goes. Can you draw that up? And I said, I don't do storyboards, but he said, draw it up in a comic book page. So I did this scene as a comic book page, and that's in the movie. That's how the movie opens. Yeah, that's fantastic. Which I didn't, it was so close. Again, I didn't know really how movies work. It was so close to the release of the film. Right. Even that, that scene I, I did with, with Hopkins going in and cutting off the vampire women's heads. I did it all, you know, Hopkins from the back because I thought we can get any, any guy in a hat and a cape. But you look at the film, the, he turns around and looks at you so you know it's, hi, they got me back for a reshoot. Yeah. And that opening scene had Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins uh, and Winona Wright. It had everybody in it. Yeah. And to go and see the movie, and the movie literally opens on a scene that I drew. Yeah. And you go, oh, there's Anthony Hopkins standing where I told somebody to have him standing. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's it, it's so surreal uh, that that was my first experience. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's a great story. And you're right that that work brain kicks in and it's self preservation, and you kind of get removed from the moment, you know, like I had a crazy thing where I, Bruce Springsteen asked me like what he should open his show with. Uh, and he, and I'd seen him the night before and he goes, last night we opened, you, you were here last night. What'd you think? And I go, well, you know, outlaw Pete new song kind of slow. You know, I think you, this is a hometown show. There are going to be people out there your age and, and my age. And they just want to know that they're still born to run. I think you come out big. He's like, yeah, what do you think? And I'm like, darkness. He goes, all right. And he writes down darkness on the edge of town on the set list. I could have died right there. I'd be done. It, and it, did he start with he that? He did. He did. And he goes, what about after that? And I said, New York Serenade. He's like, nah, that's stupid. <laughs> like, I mean, well, totally yeah, like, it puts you like, in perspective. Yeah. That's I didn't, I didn't, you know, go on to say to Francis. And you know, if you ever want to recut. You know, Godfather Three. Here's some <laughs> yeah. thoughts. You know, I I knew where to stop. Right. Um, but yeah, it's and I think there's some people who will always have a certain kind of fan blindness, and those are the people I think. You know, you 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 find yourself by accident or whatever in this place, and either you function or you don't function. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Um, and you really only have one shot at it. And it, it's, I don't even know that you can, I don't remember having to consciously tamp down the fan thing. It right. would just, for whatever reason, I, I'm here, 
So I'm going to try to function with these people as opposed to, oh, I've always wanted to ask you about this, this, or this, you know? Right. I, I just never, as a result, there's a lot of experiences I've had with people where I look back and I go, you know, I could have asked them this question. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it just never, it never occurred to me to ask those questions. I think maybe I'm just so deathly afraid of embarrassing myself that I just kind of try to not sound like an idiot. Well, yeah. Well, and also, you know what, you're interested in interesting things. And, and the most interesting thing is what's coming next, not necessarily what they've done in the past, not nostalgia or, or, you know, like, you know, talking about the junior college you went to with Lucas, like that was the last thing you mentioned. A lot of people, it'd be the first thing they mentioned, you know, and, and that would immediately limit that conversation for him because he would not be interested in that conversation because he gets that all day long. You know, that's like Springsteen. Everybody walks up to him and says, I know your cousin. I worked with this guy and, you know, we went to the same and he's just, can you imagine after 40 years of that? Like you just glaze over like. Uh, well, one thing I found really fascinating on like on the films that I worked on, Hellboy films, yeah. is seeing actors working and seeing actors, even even if we're like, I'm watching the actor work or hanging out with the actors while they're working, and then press shows up. Right. And even if they haven't changed costume, they they switch into such a completely different mode. Sure. And the most dramatic thing was, and it was on the second Hellboy film, I was there from the moment Del Toro and I said, okay, we're making a second movie, what should the story be? So literally yeah. from zero to all the way through press. Right. And to see actors on set, and you're in, you know, where were we? Prague? Uh, no, Prague was the first one. Second one oh. was um, Budapest. Oh, right. Okay. So, which was a shithole, right? <laughs> so, but, and everybody was great, and everybody was working really hard, and everybody was just very, nobody was being prima donna-ish or anything. And then you don't see the cast for months or a, a couple months. And then it's time to do press for the movie. Right. And they show up in their nice clothes and they're a completely different person. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like a professional athlete almost. You know, it's like watching them on game day versus talking to them, you know, any other time. Yeah. Um, I, I, and it's got, that's that's got to be a weird... Sadly, I think I've only got one speed. Yeah. I always thought it was better to interview music musicians than actors, you know, because the best musicians are themselves and the best actors aren't. Mm. You know, like, you know who Eminem is, you know who Neil Young is, you know who Ice Cube is, you know who Springsteen, you know, you know who they are. Well, that's it, yeah, because they, they have a different job. One guy's that's job right. is to be himself, and the other guy's job is to be, is to never be himself. That's right. That's exactly right. You, I you interviewed Spacey, and every time I interviewed him, he was a different person, you know? Um, and, and there's some actors that are super genuine people, um, or, you know, they become movie stars where they become them, the character becomes them, like Clint Eastwood, or, you know, uh, in a great way, or maybe Tom Cruise in a not quite as great way you know, uh, where they, their roles are less varied from their, their persona, you know, but uh, it, it's interesting. And also musicians have to get people to sing along with them. You know, uh, the, there's a, there's a, there's an interesting dynamic there. Like most of the musicians I've met, are, I, I felt like I knew who they were. So what's next for you? Like, we've been talking forever. I feel like I should ask you if you need to go. Am I, I'm sorry. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'd probably be in more of a rush to go if I had to go and draw Flintstones or something, but I'm, I'm, script, <laughs> you do. I'm, script, I'm scripting this comic. Uh, I made the mistake of drawing a comic with having written almost no plot. Uh, really? I wrote a lot, of, a lot of notes, most of which I can no longer find. <laughs> so I drew this thing, and now I'm looking at it going, what the fuck are these guys saying to each other? Right. It's been interesting. I finally started typing it this morning. Yesterday, I just meditated on it. Today, I'm starting to type up the actual script. And it's mostly two characters. And there's a fight that goes on. But I kind of had to figure out the personalities. Yeah. And does one guy feel sorry for the other guy? And is the and it, what it's leaning towards now is you just feel bad for this guy. And you're yeah. going to try, even though you guys, he's beating the shit out of you, you're going to try to patiently explain to him that he's just doing the wrong thing. Huh. So that's, that's interesting. It, when, I write for, when I write for other people, I write a plot and I put in as much of the dialogue as I've got while I'm writing the plot. For me, I did nothing. So yeah. so now I've just got all these characters interacting and going, well, they must be saying something. They really look like they're saying something there. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'm doing today. Do you, and then, do you find it's a tug between what they want and what they need, uh, like a character? Do you, do, you, do you think of it in that terms like that when you're, why, what's propelling them and what do they think is going on? The, the biggest struggle is if every once in a while I think about the fact that somebody's got to read this thing and are they getting any of the actual information? So trying to do natural conversation where you're also informing right. the audience of what's going on, because I've written some great dialogue. Nobody's going to know what they're referring to. Right. And what at this point, I kind of, I don't want to say I don't care, but the more important thing to me is to write something that's interesting right. and not, it'd be, I think because the Hellboy ship has sailed, right? It's uh -huh. now we're doing these odd little things that are attached to that. Yeah. And if you have to go and reread all the Hellboy stuff to know what these two guys are talking about, that's fine. My yeah. job is this this book is not aimed at new readers. This this book is aimed at people who said, I always wondered what happened between those guys. Yeah. Oh, I'll tell you. And yeah. if if you're not interested, you're not interested. Yeah. But um, you know. That's great. Do you, is is the writing easier for you than and it was I you know, because has has it gotten easier or is it, it remains the sort of it's, same it's dynamic? It's been easier writing for other people, but this one's been tough because yeah. i i didn't because i wrote notes in a 32 different sketchbooks and a bunch of loose pieces of paper and then lost them all this is so that's this, this i've heard this before though like you you don't you don't know where stuff comes from sometimes and you don't know where it goes that, i think that's part of your process well it's one thing if you lose it in your head it's another thing if you physically wrote it down and then just misplaced it that's yeah. just lazy and stupid um i can see that but anyway so i'm, I'm doing that today and um we're wrapping up the charity auctions uh, at the end of the year. So there's a few new pieces I want to do. I want to do a, at least one more painting, um, a specific Christmas drawing. Ooh. So there'll be a Christmas auction. And then I want to do a, a real nice piece 
a, a bunch of new characters just kind of cropped up as I was doing the the sketches uh, for for this year. So I wanted to do a piece that that combines a bunch of these new characters that got created. Uh, so the last auction piece will be sort of a best of oh. the auction characters. That's great. So that's I, that's that's on my list. On Christmas, a parting thought on Christmas, you know, the, the greatest thing I've ever seen on a stage was Patrick Stewart's One Man Christmas Carol. Are you familiar with that? I fell asleep in it. I thought it was so boring. I don't remember why. I just remember that my wife and I went and saw it and we both fell asleep. You didn't like it. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't remember what it was. I don't, the only thing I, I kind of vaguely remember, and maybe I remember it wrong, it seemed like he went out of his way to use all the bits from the Christmas Carol that most people aren't familiar with. Oh. And as a result, it almost seemed like it wasn't the Christmas Carol. Oh, it kind of warped the rhythm of it. Yeah. And you know, Christmas Carol is one of those things where I'm so in love with so many bits of it that if you don't present the bits that I expect, I'm yeah. thrown for a loop. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if you remember, but like the first, when I did Hellboy in Hell, one yeah. of the very, in the very first issue of Hellboy in Hell, I adapt my favorite scene from the Christmas Carol. And it was very much a warning to the audience that this time I'm just doing whatever the fuck I want. Yeah. And this happens to be my favorite scene in the Christmas Carol. So I'm going to present it as a puppet show for no particular reason, except yeah. to say it's my comic. Yeah leave now if this isn't the shit you want yeah signing your name to it wow that's interesting you know i get i think i just watched it it was almost like there's video on youtube of i don't know if it's real it's probably not real but i i, I just so want it to be real i don't investigate but there's video of bruce lee playing ping pong with nunchucks it's like and he's and he plays for there's a volley and it's in a fuji commercial and i have people i know swear it's real um, if it is real, it's the greatest thing that any human being's ever done, I think. Uh, but I viewed Patrick Stewart doing what thirty characters by himself. I was very smock. curious. I was very curious to see how you could get from that to the Christmas Carol. So, <laughs> but seeing seeing Patrick Stewart in a smock with a chair and a staff and doing like thirty two characters and just remembering the words, I think it was it was the mm -hmm. gymnastics of it and the fact that he's like. Mr. Fezziwig and like he's Tiny Tim and he's the ghost and and I'm watching this and like it's somehow it's okay and I think I drank a lot that night too though you know so well I get I I don't know what exactly put me off I, I you know sometimes well, I can see if you're a purist it's not your it's not your Christmas carol also the one man show thing yeah puts me off I mean it's it's super impressive for an actor. Sure. To see, but for I, I think because I'd gone to the theater, I wanted to see bigger, and it was a I think it was a big theater too, and it yeah. was just it was a bit of a small show for a big space. Shouldn't the ticket be cheaper? I, <laughs> if it's just a one man show, I'm joking. <laughs> more profit for somebody, um, but I the reverse of that is I went to a very small theater in L.A. a few years back, and saw a one man show. And it was, God, oh, I'm going to blank on the actor's name. He did all those H.P. Lovecraft movies. Um, and he's in The Frighteners. Um, God, what's his name? Anyway, um, a fun actor to watch. And he did a one-man show 
of Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, wow. And it was Poe doing a, um, you know, one of his readings? stage production readings. Okay. And it was riveting. Really? It, it also, now maybe this is also a difference. I was in the first row. Right. And at one point, the actor, God, what's his name? The actor got down off the stage and was pacing around in that little aisle in front of the front row. Yeah. And he, at one point, was leaning back against the stage directly in front of me. And he recited Annabelle Lee with tears in his eyes. Wow. Basically to me. I mean, it was just, right. and it was such an overwhelming experience. Sure. Um, yeah. So that was the the flip side of it that. changes things yeah I've, i was in the front row of a tom waits concert and it it, it like <laughs> exploded my head it like it, it changed oh. my life and i actually actually he he asked a question at one point while he was playing he goes what's the difference between a mink and ermine and i answered and he heard me and he like looked and like and i felt terrible i, I felt like i had like messed up a movie like i had spoken and like you know, the Godfather stopped and looked at me, you know, but uh, I said about 20 bucks, you know, and he like, hey, you know, and he, he had some, I don't even remember what he said, I just felt so bad, but it, it incorporated into the show, I guess, but, you know, I've been scarred ever since, but it, it, it was a powerful thing. There are just a couple experiences I had meeting somebody where I wanted so desperately to be cool and I failed horribly mm -hmm. and Tom Waits is one of them. I just, I wanted to be, he, he came up to see me. Oh. Uh, so, well, somebody brought him over, but with his wife, I don't know, have I ever told you this story? No. It was at a convention in San Francisco. Kathleen, right? I, I guess so. Yeah. Um, I think his son's name is Sullivan, but there'd been talk for a while. This guy I knew was trying to do a project where he would get a bunch of different artists to do comic book adaptations of Tom Waits songs. And I said, dude, sign me up. I yeah. love Tom Waits. I love what he does. I would love to do just some kind of bizarre visuals to go with a Tom Waits song. And this project kind of came and went and came and went. And it was never getting anywhere. And I think it was finally dead. It was just, you didn't hear anything about it for a year. So I'm at this convention. I'm just sitting there. And this guy who had been trying to do this project comes up to me and goes, oh, Mike, there's a couple of people I want you to meet. And there's this woman standing in front of me. And he goes, this is... What's the, the wife's name? Kathleen, I think. That's yeah. what I remember. Who, who, whoever it was, it was like, let's say Kathleen. Oh, nice to meet you. And he, I think he said the names. Because I remember the son, I think it was Sullivan, something like that. And this is Sullivan Waits. I'm like, oh, nice to meet you. And the name just isn't registering. And he goes, and this is Tom. And it was one of those things where you just, <laughs> you only, you had tunnel vision. You looked at her, you looked <laughs> at the kid, and then you go, oh, fuck. And yeah, suddenly yeah. the name makes sense. And I just, I, I lost my shit. I yeah. could not be cool. And I blithered something and, and he didn't quite know what I was talking about. And I didn't quite understand what he was talking about. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was well, not, it, it's okay. one of my, it's one of the redo moments I would like to have. Yeah, me too. So we both have, we'll just have to have our weights moment. We'll have to have another chance to, and he was in Dracula, which is funny. He was Redfield, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. know why. Yeah. I think I mentioned that. I, 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 I forgot for a second. Yeah. He, uh, there was a talk at one point about a signing uh, for, the, for the movie 
yeah. for the comic, I guess. And they were saying, oh, yeah, and Tom will do the signing. And I was thinking, well, that would be cool because then I would get a chance to not be such a doof about it. But, yeah. Well, maybe you could do a Tom Waits thing and, and auction it off and send it to him or something like that. That would just be a plea for... Please like it would me. Be a des- is it desperation plea? Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's just say it's cool that you met Tom Waits. And actually, he did he did suggest some amazingly weird book. Oh, wow. And he said, oh, you should do a graphic novel of this book. And it was something like some explorer goes up the Amazon, and when he comes back, he's a monkey. Oh, wow. And it just sounds like something he would make up. Yeah, yeah. And I said that sounds like an album you should do. And, yeah. you know, and, and I go to the airport coming back from the convention and I go in the bookstore and there's the book. Ooh, no. How? Yes, wow. I have it. And I've never seen it since. And I've never heard anybody ever reference it. So it's like that book only existed because he mentioned it the day before. And it That's magically awesome. appeared for me. And I, right. I'd love to think he, Tom and I are the only people who have copies of yeah. the book. There's a monkey behind you right now. And he's got the book. No, there's not. I can see behind me. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. God, that's, that's great. I love when stuff like that happens. Like, I can't yeah. think of any, anything quite like that. That's fantastic. Uh, what happens to the monkey? Do you know? Or I haven't, I've never read the book. In fact, it, I... I'm not sure where it is. It's, it's, I'd like to think it still exists. I, it, it's not a dream. It really, I do remember specifically the bookstore at the San Francisco airport, find this thing and going, he wasn't fucking with me. It yeah. really exists. It's so weird how this, this book can be so strange that only person who's ever mentioned it to me is Tom Waits. 30 seconds before you picked it up, he was there and pulled it out of his trench coat pocket, placed it there and then disappeared. You know that. It'd be cool if I opened it up and it said for Mike. Yeah, and only Mike. (laughs) Well, Mike, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on the show. And like, can we do this every day? Mm, No, I've used up all my good material. (laughs) I think I have too. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I know you've got a lot. (laughs) Well, thanks for coming on and uh, good luck with the auctions and, and with all the new projects. And, uh, Look forward to seeing your stuff in 2021 and look forward to seeing a year that's moving in a better direction than this one. It's hard to imagine a worse direction. So we will see. Merry Christmas. You too. All right. Nice to talk, Jeff. Thanks. All right. Happy New Year. See you. You too. It was very fun to hear you and Mike talk. Um, He's a very funny guy. And like you said, he's, you know, a little bit of a, a grump, but I'm, I was very happy to have him on the show and I'm glad he had a good time. Yeah, I think that was a lot of fun. I think uh, I think we should have him on every week. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I just think he's just great. And I think it's really cool the stuff that he's doing. And, you know, we did. I realized we didn't really talk about the Hellboy movies much. So we, we should get him back to, to talk about the, the three feature films that have been done and um, and also what the future of the character is. Um, it's, it's just, it's so much fun reading Hellboy. Like, I don't know, Evan, how much of it that you've had a chance to see. Um, I know that you're going to read more of it after this, but, uh, for the folks out there that haven't really checked out Mike's stuff, I think that, uh, it's, it's a really, just a big opportunity for you because this, there's a shelf full of his work. That's just amazing. And I know this week, speaking of shelves, I think 
we have one of his works for our essential shelf. Well, exactly. There's a very good segue to the essential shelf. You know, yeah, exactly. There's um, Dark Horse Comics has put out uh, an entire shelf of trade paperback collections for the run of Hellboy. Uh, and they started, those trade paperbacks started in 1994. Um, and they're red and black, very distinctive looking. They look great on the shelf together if you get a bunch. I, I have like 20 of them in a row um, and, and just adore them. And uh, for our essential shelf, which Evan and I have been putting together, and again, for folks that have not uh, caught the show before here at Mindspace, our essential shelf is just a recommendation of, here's a great comic book uh, collection, graphic novels uh, that you should check out. And it'd be a good one to read, especially if you're new to the medium, if, if you're, you don't have a long history uh, with comics and you're intrigued by them, I wanna see what all the fuss is about, um, these are the ones to start with. And uh, at the very front of that list would be today's entry. I'm gonna start at the beginning because I think with Hellboy, you don't wanna miss anything. It's, it's such a good adventure. And the story uh, without ruining anything is that uh, it takes us back to World War II and has a very diesel punk look to it. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a group of uh, soldiers uh, in, fighting the Nazis and uh, they come across a very strange and unexpected discovery, which is a very bright red, unusual looking newborn. Uh, and uh, that newborn grows up to be Hellboy, who's a giant, powerful, horned red man with a, uh, a uh, very large fist of stone uh, right hand, his red right hand, as Nick Cave might call it. Um, and it goes from there. And then uh, basically he, when things in the dark, when, uh, when there's things in the dark that uh, scare us, Hellboy goes in and scares them back. I just mangled the, the movie tagline. I, I, I messed up right in the middle of it, but you get the idea. So for Essential Shelf today, uh, I'm going with Seed of Destruction, which is the name of that October 1994 collection that starts off the entire saga of, of Hellboy and introduces the character, also introduces uh, his compatriots in, the, in his battle against supernatural threats, even though he himself is never quite accepted by the world that he saves. Well, that's a very good way to put it. I'm looking forward to reading that. You know, I've never really dove into the comic verse of Hellboy. I've only seen the movies, so I'm looking forward to knowing more about this character. He's terrific, and you'll see how much the movies, how much they honored the source material. Uh, and the fact that Guillermo del Toro produced, excuse me, directed the first two Hellboy films, uh, and then would go on to, you know, uh, his Oscar glory with Shape of Water. Uh, you can see the amount of talent and uh, respect that was brought to the source material. And it's just, it's just top, top notch. Well, that's great. Um, so I'll definitely check that out. And then while our listeners are at it, definitely go check out Mike's auction pieces on his Facebook. Um, it's for a good cause. We definitely want you guys to go see that. Some of my favorites that he's done as an avid fan of SpongeBob are his takes on those SpongeBob characters that he did earlier this year. And so he's just a great artist and it's for a good cause. So check those out. Check out Seed of Destruction by Hellboy. And Jeff, is there anything else? This is going to come out on December 1st. So is there anything else that our listeners should check out? I think, uh, well... The, uh, the holidays keep it coming. I know what they should check out for sure is Mindspace because they come back. we got some fun stuff planned for the next couple of weeks, some holiday stuff. 
coming up and uh uh and everybody just stay safe out there it's it's a crazy world you know um uh happy holidays yeah happy holidays well jeff unless there's anything else uh that's the end of the episode i'll see you next time see ya